you have a Bible, please open with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel according to Luke. We are going to be looking in chapter 1, verses 1 through 25 this morning. The title of the message today is Faithful Service to the Lord. As we come into this Christmas season, we're going to spend four Sundays, Lord willing, in Luke's Gospel, looking at these events and circumstances around, up to, and including the birth of the Messiah. So again today, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. Um, This is a longer text. The next few weeks we're going to be looking at some longer texts. And for the purposes of what I want to accomplish in these weeks, we're going to have to skim over some parts. There, There are some areas where, though we would love to dive into some of the truths of Scripture here, We're just going to leave those for another time, but um, for these weeks, really, I want us to walk up to the coming of Messiah. We've got three more weeks up until Christmas, and so I want to use these four Sundays to highlight what the Lord was doing and how the Lord was working in the days leading up to and in the birth of Christ. So Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 25, I'm going to read our text, and then we'll go before the Lord in prayer. This is God's Word, holy, inspired, and without error. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of these things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many people will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he, John, who will go as a forerunner before him. Jesus Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of righteous, so as to make ready a 
people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. This is the word of God. May he write it upon our hearts. Now let's go before him in prayer. Lord, we come to you now as we prepare to come under the authority of your word as it's taught and proclaimed, and for that, Lord, we pause to praise you. Great are you and great are your works, for you have done great and magnificent things among your people. You have, through the Lord Jesus Christ, accomplished salvation. The price has been paid and the work has been completed. Lord, what a glorious thought that is to know that our sins are nailed to the cross and we bear them no more. Lord, may we come before you with hearts of thanksgiving, hearts that rejoice because of this great and finished work of Christ. And Lord, as we come to your word, we understand that you have given us your word to instruct us in the way that we should live. You give us direct instruction, you give us examples to follow, you show Christ in types and shadows, and you reveal him in his person and in his ministry. All of this is contained within your magnificent word. And so we ask today that we would see a glimpse of the glory of Christ. We ask that we would be able to see and discern and understand the areas in which you are instructing us as your people. Lord, I pray that we would have humble and ready hearts, Lord, hearts that are ready to hear and receive and apply your word. I ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would move in power through our minds and into our hearts to write your word upon our hearts to bring us through the stage of godly sorrow that leads ultimately to repentance. Lord, I ask that you would sanctify us by your truth. We ask, O Lord, that you would help us to direct our minds and our hearts to you and to your word. Lord, we're in a season that is 
busy and can be just stressful and overwhelming with things to do, but may we in this time and over the next several weeks, may we focus on the glorious truth of the incarnation of the Savior. May we focus our mind on the truths that you reveal to us in your word and we ask that you would write them on our hearts, help us to apply them in our lives so that we might be holy, set apart, that we might walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling. Pray that our lives would be to the praise of your glorious grace. Work and move in us by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So again, Luke's account here is fascinating in that we get a very detailed and extended look into what the Lord was doing in these days. We just finished the book of Malachi, and so we understand that the Lord kind of cut off at the end of the writing of the Old Testament, and for some 450 years, the Lord was silent. He spoke not to his people as he was preparing to send the Messiah, and so Luke gives us a detailed look at the things that the Lord brings to pass right before the coming of Christ. Um, Luke 1 is a long chapter. It's 80 verses, and in it we see such a picture of God's sovereignty, such a picture of His providence whereby He orchestrates the circumstances surrounding these people to bring about John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Christ, and then to bring about the Messiah. So that's a primary theme for us to keep in mind today and over the next number of weeks is to, as we read and as we study and as we think through this, to see the Lord's providence, to see His sovereignty and to praise Him for His great power and the great wisdom that He put on display as He brought about the Christ. So today we see the power and providence of the Lord in the conception and then later on in the birth of John the Baptist. And surely we can see from these verses that when the Lord is at work in and through his people, it is the faithful and the righteous that the Lord presses into service. The Lord uses those who, while they are not perfect, they're active at their duty stations. They're not gone missing. They have not went a, while they are at their post, doing what the Lord has asked and commanded and required of them. So really, we can drive that thought inward to ourselves to, to come up with this primary idea of what do we want to see? What does the Lord have for us to see in this text today? And that is to be of service to the Lord, we must strive to be faithful and righteous. To be of service, we must strive to be faithful and righteous. We are completing our duties, obeying His commands, and we are actively devoted to the Lord. And that, of course, is only those who are in Christ. For if you're not in Christ, all the works that you complete, all of your faithfulness, all of your righteousness is but a filthy rag before the Lord. You cannot, you will not merit your salvation. So this is for those who are in Christ. We are to be faithful. We are to be righteous, and then the Lord will press us and drive us into His service. So God is totally sovereign. That's, that's kind of overarching point 
God is totally sovereign, but He chooses to use the faithful. He chooses to use the righteous. He chooses to use those who walk in and by the Holy Spirit. So, so that's kind of what we want to look at. It's kind of some, some pictures of faithfulness, some pictures of what does faithful service look like? What marks these people that are used and, and choice of God? And so there's five headings kind of that we'll use to guide us through the text as we consider faithful service to the Lord. Um, really, verses 1 through 4 don't necessarily belong with the rest of the narrative. It's Luke's introduction, but it's so rich that we're going to use it because it drives into this, this greater theme of faithful service. So in verses 1 through 4, I want to look at the distinction of God's truth. You could say the primacy of God's truth, the importance of God's truth. Luke says, as many have undertaken to compile an account of these things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and servants of the word, he says, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything and carefully looked at it from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order. He does that, verse 4, so that you may know the exact truth, the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. So again, I want to give a disclaimer. We are going to leave so much out from especially this first section that we could look at but I want to consider how Luke sets apart the importance of God's word, the importance of God's truth, because to be a faithful servant of the Lord, you must hold to that authority and that sufficiency and that importance of God's word. So Luke begins by saying that these things were accomplished. They were accomplished among us. They were written down and, and carefully handed down and shared from one person to the next so that they could be compiled and written and recorded. They were handed down carefully by those who were eyewitnesses of and disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is one of the greatest reasons that we have confidence in the veracity of the Holy Scriptures. This is not one man's account or just a couple people who, who decided, hey, let's make this story about a man named Jesus. No, this is eyewitness accounts handed on, carefully recorded, carefully written down, carefully retold, and then written in consecutive order by Luke here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we might know the exact truth. This is a, an account of a man and his ministry that was carefully followed. And we could pull out a lot just from that idea that Jesus was carefully followed. His work was carefully studied and known and understood. We see that it was the eyewitnesses that were so important in this. First John 1, John begins by saying that he was an eyewitness. The things that he's about to write of are things that he was an eyewitness to. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, that he was an eyewitness to the ministry of Christ. This is a fact that Scripture holds as highest importance of how do we develop the truth? How do we understand and confirm the truth? And really, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 15, where the Lord says that the truth is to be confirmed 
by two or three witnesses. So we go all the way back to the Old Testament. This is restated numerous times in the, Old, in the New Testament that the truth is established and confirmed and then should be believed not by your opinion, not by what you think, but by the eyewitnesses. And so Luke says, here's the truth. I got it directly from these eyewitnesses. I have carefully investigated the truth. Dear friend, do you carefully investigate the truth of God's Word? Eyewitness accounts, men carried about and inspired word for word by the Holy Spirit of God. Surely we should make careful inquiry of the Holy Scriptures. So Luke is writing to precisely preserve the truth. Luke also continues, he says, I'm writing all these things in consecutive order to this man, Theophilus. He says, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. The exact truth speaks of something that is firm, something that is secure or stable. It even speaks to safety or security from some type of danger. Some of the other translations really pick up on that and they bring about the idea that Luke is saying, I'm writing this so that you may know for certain that these things are true, that you know, may know the exact truth and that you may have certainty that these things are true. It's as though Luke was writing to leave no doubt. He's clearing up any misconceptions. He is affirming what is true. He is giving assurance of these things that are greatly hoped in and hoped for. He is writing so that we may know for sure, so that we may have certainty about what happened around the coming of the Messiah. This applies to his entire gospel, so not just the coming, but the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have confidence like Luke does? Do you have confidence in the Word of God? When you go out and share the gospel, do you share the gospel with authority because you are proclaiming God's truth? Or do you go in and, and you think you might sneak in a little bit of gospel in a conversation. You might trick someone into realizing that they're a sinner and that they need Jesus Christ. No, you go and preach. You go and proclaim. Now, there may be some quote-unquote nuance in, in how you get to that point, but when we get to proclaiming the gospel, you preach it with boldness. You preach it with authority. You preach it with confidence because it is God's revealed truth. In light of the context of what we're looking at today, what we see in the, in the immediate, the first couple chapters of Luke's gospel, this is important to understand. He was rigorous in recording the truth, and we must apply that same idea in our understanding, in our reception of the truth. This is not... Really, really applying this to the, to the coming of Jesus especially, this is not a story of fantasy. 
This is not a story where we might add or subtract some details and take some creative liberty to make the story uh, easier to listen to or easier to follow or easier to understand. No, we have the facts. These are the facts that we proclaim. Things like the veracity of the virgin conception and the virgin birth of Jesus Christ are greatly important. They're attacked and maligned, but we must hold firmly to this line. We must must staunchly defend the truth just as Luke is going to do. So again, we see the distinction, the primacy of the truth. Luke begins by saying, look, I'm writing because I want you to know all the facts. I I want you to be able to, to believe this with all of your heart, leaving no doubt so that you know by the witnesses and the facts and how this all comes together that this is the truth. To be of service to the Lord, dear friends, we must have the same passion for the truth. We must have the same devotion to the truth. We must know the truth. We must live the truth, and we must proclaim and love the truth. And friends, we can certainly understand that this starts in your day-to-day life. It starts in your home. You, you don't build up a love for and a courage in the Word by just coming to church on Sunday, and that's the only time your Bible is open during the week. To love the Word starts with knowing God, knowing the God of the Word, and allowing Him to change and mold and shape your heart. And then He builds in you this confidence and this hope in the Word. So with that, let's turn then to, to the narrative, this story of the conception of John the Baptist. And again, it's, it's fascinating what we see here. We see, I think, really just some of the primary and key and important do's and don'ts of, of how might we be faithful to the Lord? How might we be pressed into service? What faithfulness does He require to use us in His service? So, I want to look at verses 5 through 12 and see the dedication of God's servants. The dedication of God's servants. We can begin there at verses 5 through 7, looking at Zacharias and Elizabeth. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there is a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughter of Aaron, the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in their years. So we see that they were of proper descent, really almost of noble descent in, in the idea of the people of Israel. Um, Zacharias was of descent of the priests that would carry out duties. If you look at First Chronicles chapter 24, you see these priests and their duties and how they served on a rotation. And, and so Zacharias's group was eighth in this rotation, but he was of, of proper descent, of proper birth. He was of a priestly line, and he was a priest of the Lord. Elizabeth, likewise, was a member of the priestly family, one of the daughters 
of Aaron. So they were, they were Hebrews of Hebrews, as Paul would say. But notice, looking at verse 6, what we really can pull out from this is that Luke is just mentioning that, that, that idea of their, of their birth being of Jewish lineage. He's bringing that out only to point it out as a historical fact. Because what's important is in verse 6, that they were both righteous in the sight of God. They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. MacArthur would say that this is a clear echo of Pauline theology, of the theology of the Apostle Paul. And that would make sense, right? Because Luke is a close companion. He was a, a close friend and ministry partner of the Apostle Paul. And when he talks about righteousness in the sight of God, that is a clear direct, uh, clear pointer to the things that Paul consistently wrote about and taught about after his conversion. So it's not merely that they walked in righteousness. It's not merely that they were blameless and kept all the commandments of the Lord, though they certainly did. And you hold on to that because we'll come back to that. But notice that Luke says they were righteous in the sight of God. They're righteous in the sight of God. They're righteous in their heart because the Lord had counted them righteous. Because the Lord had changed their heart. They were like Paul wrote of in Romans chapter 3. They were justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. They were counted righteous. Righteousness was credited to their account. But then don't lose sight of this important point. They were known by others to be righteous because they walked blamelessly. Because their hearts were transformed. They were known to be righteous because they kept the Lord's commands and the Lord's laws. We cannot procure our own salvation. We cannot earn or merit the Lord's favor. But when He counts you as righteous, He changes you. He transforms you. He, he takes out the heart of stone and puts in you a heart of flesh, and you are made a new creature. You're called a, a follower and a disciple of Christ, and then you follow in his steps. The historical count here is that Elizabeth and Zacharias were righteous. They were blameless, and they were holy. Could the same be said about you? Would the same be said and recorded about me? Uh, that, that's the question. Those who are righteous are those who the Lord uses. Uh, that's why Luke includes it here, because he is showing the importance of their blameless living and that the Lord used them to bring about John the Baptist. That working in this righteous living is further seen in verses 8 and 9. Luke writes, It happened that while Zacharias was performing his priestly service, before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now think about verse 7. Luke had just written that they had no child. They wanted a child, but Elizabeth was barren. They had no child, and what was the response of these people? 
Zacharias was faithfully serving, faithfully at his post, faithfully going about the duties that the Lord had given him. So it was a, during a season of trial and difficulty that they were found to be faithful. That they were found to be going about what the Lord had called them to do. So do trials, do periods of stress or just general busyness of life, do they drive you away from serving the Lord and serving His people and serving the church and being involved in the life of the church? Or does that trial, do those difficulties, does that stress, does it drive you deeper into your devotion to the Lord and your love for His people? You could ask that question this way, is serving the Lord... Serving His people, serving His church, is that a source of joy to you? Or is it a burden? Because if it's a source of joy, think about this. Put on a logical cap and think about this. If service to the Lord and His people and His church brings you joy, then when you are walking in the fires of trial, are you going to be secluded? Or are you going to be active with your brothers and sisters at your side because serving the Lord brings you the utmost joy of life. Now, obviously, there are situations that can hinder or preclude that. But in the overall scheme of things, do you want to be with the people of God? Do you want to serve with the people of God? Or do you want to do your own thing Monday through Saturday and then come in here on Sunday, get your fill, and then go back and be on your merry way? If service to the Lord brings you joy, then that's where you're going to turn. That's where you're going to run in times of difficulty. I'd also point out that in this, in verses 8 and 9, we see the Lord's sovereignty, right? Because it was at this time that Zacharias was serving, he was doing his duty, he was then chosen by lot. so, So it could have been him or a number of other men that went into the temple to to burn this offering, and and he was chosen by Lot because God is sovereignly at work in these circumstances. On that very day, the Lord was at work. He directed everything to bring Zacharias into the temple by himself so the angel could come and speak to him. And so Zacharias is in there. He's performing his duty. And verse 11 picks up that an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. Now again, just to to draw out, this is kind of like a portrait of Zacharias and why the Lord considered him to be faithful and used him. Now, this is not the Lord, so the the fear that we give to the Lord is not the exact same fear that would have gripped Zacharias at this point, but this is an angel sent from the Lord with, with glory surely shining from the Lord. And Zacharias responds with fear. He is gripped, he is grabbed, he is overwhelmed with fear and reverence at the sight of the glory of God. Calvin would say that though God does not appear to his servants for the purpose of terrifying them, he says, it is yet advantageous and even necessary for them to be struck with awe so that amidst their agitation they may learn to give God the glory that is due unto his name. 
Zacharias got this, this vision of, of some of the glory of God that was given through this angel visiting him, and the Lord used that to stir him up to fear, to stir him up to a holy reverence, to understand that this is the work of God, and I must bow myself low because the Lord will humble the proud and He will exalt the lowly. So the holiness and the glory of God brings fear and trembling and reverence. It should drive us to humility. It should soften our hearts to consider the glory of the Lord. And considering His glory and driven to humility, we have but one response, and that's to submit ourselves to Him. So these dedicated servants are going about their lives. They're in a time of difficulty, a time of sorrow, a time of trial, and yet they're active in the service of the Lord. And the Lord uses all these things to orchestrate and to bring about His purposes. So now let's look at verses 13 through 17 and see the duty of God's messengers. Now we shift our attention from Zacharias, really, to John the Baptist, because these verses are all about John. The angel said to Zacharias, Do not be afraid, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So in that, we see much about the duty and the work of John the Baptist, both what he is going to accomplish, but also what the Lord accomplishes through him. You know, you begin with verses 13 and 14, and you see that John was obviously totally passive in these things, but the angel says that you will give your son the name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. John brings joy and gladness to his parents. He causes those around him to rejoice, to be filled with thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. And John is passive in that. We are passive in those things in many ways. We are passive in that the Lord transforms our hearts, and then we are synergistically active alongside of him as we are sanctified. And it's that work where the Lord changes us that we bring joy and gladness and thanksgiving to others. This is a mark of a servant of the Lord. They bring joy. They bring encouragement to others. You could, you could apply that, I think, uh, very specifically to the relationships of parents and children. Parents, do you encourage your children you bring joy and gladness to them, or do you burden them in the way that you lead and shepherd and teach them? Children, do you bring joy to your parents? That doesn't just mean the young children, but, but you teenagers, you young adults, do you bring joy to your parents? Do you encourage your parents because you respond to their investment of God's Word into your life? 
Or are you a burden because your stony, hard heart allows you not to obey, but causes you to press them away when they want to bring the truth to bear? We could apply this within the life of the church. Do you bring joy to your brother or your sister, to your left or to your right? Are you a faithful encourager, or are you always bringing out the negative of every situation? Do you point others toward Christ, or do you always bring others down? And John was passive in these things, and in many ways we're passive in the joy that comes in our salvation to others. But let's apply these things. Are you a source of joy and encouragement? text continues on, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. John will be holy. He will be great. He will be set apart by the Lord all the way from his conception. And so what we see here it's not necessarily that he is great and holy inside of the Lord because he abstains from alcohol, he drinks no wine and drinks no liquor, but he's holy and set apart from the Lord because he is distinctly set apart from the world. That's why John was holy, because the Lord made him holy, because he set him apart from the ways and the contaminants of the world. Those are the people that God uses. It's not that drinking alcohol makes you of no service to the Lord. It's that you need to be separate from all worldly things to be of service to the Lord. So abstinence from certain things is not a high enough standard. The standard of the Lord is holiness. It's righteousness. It's that which is seen personified in Jesus Christ. And John exemplified those things. Not only was he free from the consuming cares and desires of the world, but really what empowered those things, Luke outlines and makes clear for us, is that he was filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. He was a holy man because he walked in the power of the Spirit. He was filled with God's truth. He was transformed by God and walked in the power that God worked within him. John was free from worldliness because he was filled with the Spirit. One thing we can't really dwell on enough is that to be free from the cares and the consuming desires of the world, we have but one response, and that is to be full of the Spirit. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what John did. John was known and, and seen to be a humble man. Think about John chapter 3. Now, this, that's the Apostle John writing, not John the Baptist, but he wrote of John the Baptist. And when these people were leaving John the Baptist and going to follow Jesus... John's disciples were a little unnerved, and John's response was, well, he must increase and I must decrease. They must leave me and go follow him because he is the Messiah. He is, as the apostle John wrote, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There's no reason to follow John the Baptist, he says. Go follow Christ. 
So he was humble. But the second picture that we, we also must remember is that he was bold with the truth. And so often those can be, be mis, misapplied. The balance of those can be tough to strike and tough to understand. But John did so perfectly. He pointed people to Christ and then his humility, but he was bold with the truth. Think about what he's so known for saying in Matthew chapter 3. You brood of vipers, you must repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Think about that story in Matthew chapter 14 when Herod and Herodias were committing adultery. John gave his life. He gave his very life to stand up to that sin, to call out that sin. So he was humble, but he was bold. That lowliness of mind and boldness with the word must mark you as a faithful servant of the Lord. The humility to point all to Christ. You don't come, call someone to come follow you. You don't call someone even to come follow your church or, or maybe your favorite preacher. You take them to Christ. Now, we could argue that you're taken and shown Christ better in some churches than others, assuredly, by some preachers better than others, but you take people and you show them Christ. The only following that anyone ever should do of you or of me is that you say, as Paul did, imitate me only as far as I imitate Christ. That's the humility that we need, and we need the boldness to confront sin, to confront it plainly and clearly, even to the point that we give our own lives. And it's that humble boldness, I think, really, really propped up and led into the ministry of John the Baptist that we see in verses 16 and 17. He'll turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. He'll go as a forerunner before Christ in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Do we realize the Lord is coming back? John, John was preparing for the coming, the first coming of Christ, and in a way, the second coming, because if Christ didn't come back in judgment, then it's all a moot point. But he was preparing a people for the coming of the Lord, and he did that by calling them to repent. He did that by calling them to be filled with godly sorrow that leads to changed lives. It's not just conformed living. It's not just an outward reformation of your life. It's the transformation of your heart that then overflows in your love for the Lord. Your desire, your consumption, what you are consumed with is the glory of God. That was John's desire. He turned many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord, and surely that is our duty as well, to turn people to the Lord. We ought to seek and strive after broad and fruitful ministries for the Lord's sake. You know, that's not always the perfect goal, because we want to be sure that we're faithful, but it's not wrong to desire a fruitful life, a fruitful ministry for the sake of the Lord, but in that we must also strive for a broad and a fruitful pursuit of personal holiness. 
All that we strive for for the kingdom of God must only be the outworking of what we strive for on the inside, that we desire to be holy. I love the quote from Robert Murray McShane. It's not great talents that God blesses so much as likeness to Jesus. You may have all these oratory skills, you may have all these gifts in life, but they matter nothing. What matters is likeness to Jesus. McShane continued, a holy minister is an awful, an awesome weapon in the hand of God. Do you want to be an awesome weapon in the hand of God? Well, if so, pursue holiness. Moving to verses 18 through 23, we see, we've seen the distinction of God's truth, the dedication of His servants, the duty of His messenger. And then we want to see those have all been encouragements of what to do. Then in verses 18 and following, we see the doubting of God's announcement, something that we are not to do. Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. That's a kind way of saying she's real old too. The angel answered him, and he said, I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. So the angel is... The Lord has sent the angel to tell Zacharias that he will have a son. Okay, and Zacharias is a devout, righteous man. There's no disputing that. The text clearly shows that he was a righteous man. The text clearly shows that he knew this was a messenger of God. But what was the response of Zacharias? It was doubt. Doubt the man standing before the altar of the Lord with an angel of the Lord there in his very presence doubted the message that the Lord delivered through that angel. In this full context, that's really amazing to consider. You step back and you think, how could he doubt? How could he not have faith? How could he not just be overwhelmed with joy as soon as he heard this message from this glorious being sent from God's presence? Rightfully so, we ask that question, but how many times do we fight that same doubting and unbelieving and unfaithful spirit? How often do you pray without faith? Can you think back to, to verse 13? This was clearly something that Zacharias and Elizabeth had prayed for. The angel said, your petition is being answered. So they prayed without faith because the Lord says, I'm going to give your request. Zacharias says, but how's that going to happen? So the Lord says, because I'm God and I can do as I please. I'm in the heavens and I do exactly as I please. It's one thing we must learn here, friends, is that we must never doubt the power of God, and we must never doubt His desire and His pleasure in answering the prayers of His saints. The Lord takes pleasure. The Lord receives glory in giving good things to His people. 
Regarding prayer and faith, James writes very clearly, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, because he's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. The faithful servant of the Lord believes in God's power. And you believe in it wholeheartedly. That's one thing I, I do think we have to be careful about when we pray. We do pray with submissive hearts, hearts that we make our requests known to God, knowing that He is God and we are not, and He can answer them as He pleases. But we should ask boldly. We should ask in faith and with belief. It's, it's almost like we tend to, to gravitate towards this caveat of everything. Lord, do this, but if not, do this. Well, no, it should be, Lord, do this. I have the faith that you will. And Lord, if you don't, give me the strength to walk through what you call me to. It's not this, Lord, do this, or if you want, do this. Lord, this is my request. I'm making it known to you. I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as one washed in his blood. And Lord, let it be. Let it be so. Amen. That's what we say. We pray and then we ask the Lord to make it come to pass. And we trust Him. We believe. And we rest and rely upon His grace because His mercies are new every morning. And if the answer is no, or not now, or later, or anything other than yes, God's grace will be sufficient. We know that. And we must walk in it. We must walk in it. The Lord responded to the lacking faith. Did he not? He, he did not take it lightly. The angel says that you'll be silent and unable to speak until these things take place. Now, there is discipline and mercy all in the same action. Because Zacharias is not able to speak. The Lord takes that ability from him. But he says, you will be able to again when these things come to pass. And they will still come to pass. You have doubted, but the Lord is sovereign. And these things that he has ordained will come to pass regardless of if you believe them or not. So we see the doubting, but I want to turn the corner here with Zacharias because I think there's something we see that shows a picture of his faithfulness and his humility. So it goes on that the people were waiting, that they knew that something must have happened. Zacharias came out and he was unable to speak. But he kept making signs, and he remained mute. And the verse 23 says, And when the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. Now what's pointed there, what we must see is that he remained in his service. The Lord was actively disciplining him, but he remained at his duty station. He remained and completed his service to the Lord until the days of those service were ended. That means he repented. It means that his heart was changed. And we'll see that later on in Luke chapter 1 when we see the birth of John the Baptist. But what we see is a picture of humble, holy faithfulness. How we ought to strive to be like that. How we ought to strive that even in the most trying and difficult of circumstances that we remain at the ready. That we Remain active in service to the Lord. 
service to his people. So that's the doubting of God's announcement. And lastly, in verses 24 and 25, I want to see the devotion of God's favored. The devotion of God's favored. And so after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way that the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace from among men. Now, there's some debate as to why did she stay secluded, but I think the contextual clues around here show that it was an act of faithfulness. It was an act of thanksgiving. She didn't say that until I know this child is coming for sure, I'm going to stay secluded so people don't know what's going on. She doesn't give any indication that she questions the Lord's work because the Lord responded to the doubting of Zacharias, but we don't see the same with Elizabeth. I, th- I think what we see here is, is a picture. You, you know those, those times when you've had a, a time of deep communion with the Lord, be it on a Sunday morning or at home in your quiet time, or maybe you've gone to one of those Bible conferences where you're just built up and encouraged and you just want to stay. And it's like Peter at the Mount of of Transfiguration. He says, Lord, it's good that we're here. He he wanted to be there. He wanted to experience God's glory. And that's really what we see in Elizabeth. He said, this is the way that the Lord dealt with me. This is the way I was when he showed his favor to me. And so I want to remain here. I want to rejoice. I want to be thankful. So ask the question, how do you respond to God's favor? Do you have this heart of devotion and thanksgiving and joy? Or do you take his favor, his blessing for granted? That's one thing I I think in this time of year and just in general, we must be careful about as the Lord's people that we recognize his blessings, that we recognize those prayers that he answers, those ways that he lifts us up and holds us and carries us, and casts his favor upon us. And we should respond with thanksgiving, with joy, and with praise. So to draw this to a conclusion, again, the the overarching thing we see here, one of those is the Lord's sovereignty, his providence, his miraculous power in bringing about this part of redemptive History. This was a part of redemptive history because John had been promised. He had been prophesied, so he had to come, and the Lord sovereignly brought that about as he so desired. So, so that's kind of overarching point, God's sovereignty. But we must see that when the Lord is at work, he accomplishes his sovereign purposes through people. And when it's positive and good things, he accomplishes those things through people who are actively and faithfully serving him. If we desire to be instruments in the hands of the Lord, if we desire to be weapons in his war against evil, we must look to and follow these examples. We must put on the armor of God and stand at the ready. Be ready to make war against all forms of evil and sin and unrighteousness. Just think about that description of John the Baptist. 
He was filled with the Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he was holy and he was set apart. And he was great in the sight of the Lord because he was so set apart from the world. The pursuit of Christ's likeness, I think one thing we can see in the life of John, the pursuit of Christ's likeness should and must begin early in life. It's never too early to be teaching our little ones the Word of God, the gospel of Christ, and our required response to it. While this should begin early, let's remember it's also never too late to put off sin and to put on Christ. It's never too late in life to repent and put your faith and your trust in Him. It's never too late in life to pursue a greater faithfulness to the Lord and His Word and His people. We can't teach our children. We can't teach others. We can't teach one another things that we are not actively doing on our own. You can't call for one to follow Christ when you're not following Him yourself. You can't take that brother by the arm Point him to Christ and, and carry him along and disciple him and pour your life into him if you're not walking with Christ yourself. We must pursue Christ. We must have the heart of Luke here. We must desire that others know the exact truth of God's word, the exact truth of what God accomplished for us at the cross must be filled with the desire to make known the Word of God. We must strive to be faithful. We must strive to be righteous. We ought to be active in serving in the ministries of the church. We must be active in our pursuit of mortifying sin. That's faithfulness to the Lord in a nutshell. You're mortifying the flesh. You're killing sin and you're actively engaged and serving in the work of the Lord through the local church. So may we be faithful in that. May the Lord cut our hearts and purge us and purify us where we need to be. And may we see the work of the Lord and respond with joy, with thanksgiving, and with praise, because He and He alone is worthy. Let's pray.